I love therapy. Okay, good. You should have therapy. He should have therapy. Everybody should have therapy. Oh, okay, good. What, what did he say? Therapy, therapy, therapy. This is Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Keir Milburn, and I'm joined as usual by Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we're in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Nadia, uh, why do we want to talk about therapy? I think it was your idea this week. Yeah, yeah, it was. So basically, I've got this central question that I'm interested in, and that's about whether it's possible for me to reconcile my collectivist politics with the fact that individualistic kind of Freudian psychotherapy has had a massive influence in my life. So to unpack that a bit, I would say that politically, I tend to argue for a focus against introspection and, you know, the sort of looking inside oneself, identity, etc., which is stuff that we've talked about on this show. And an acid way is kind of recognize we've talked about this as well is recognizing the value of getting out of your head uh, and doing things with with other people and those being transcendental experiences in many ways but i probably the most transformative effect of my life has been through very individualistic looking inside myself looking at my history looking at my childhood therapy when I kind of hit rock bottom uh, a few years ago, which I, I might talk about a little bit later. So how do we explain that this kind of introspection and internal work, how do, how do I make that fit or can it fit with a collectivist politics is really the question. I suppose it fits into some of the other, other longer term interests on the podcast, such as things like how does it relate to consciousness raising and other things we've talked about, you know, the, the the epidemic of anxiety disorders and depression, et cetera, and, and all of that extra pressure that's been put on people by the pandemic, et cetera. All three of us took part in a, a sort of online consciousness raising group when when uh, the first lockdown happened. You know, I think that's, that's a really useful topic to to extend some of our other uh, previous discussions and give a, give a give a new angle on them. Yeah. There's also just a perpetual question of, like, in generic terms, because therapy something kind of radical should approve of or not? Because, you know, is it is it just helping people to adapt to circumstances that need to change? Or is it helping people survive a set of circumstances that aren't going to change anytime soon? And thereby, you know, be in a better position to try to change them when the opportunity arises. It's the dilemma around lots of cultural forms we've talked about. You know, is it escapism or is it utopianism? So I think that kind of dynamic is is really sort of important, I think, to think about. Yeah, and I think one thing that we we want to chat about is this idea of therapy, like what we actually mean by it, and what are the different forms of things that we would categorize as as therapy. And I think one thing that we were talking about before is this idea of therapy as cure versus therapy as kind of general life coping. And in my head. I shouldn't say in my head so many times in this uh, in this episode since this is very much an episode about what's in people's heads. In one way, rather, another way of saying it, I see those as two very different things. 
So whether it's about you have a problem, you're going, as I did, you have a particular problem through which you are going to be therapized, or as Jeremy, you've just mentioned, what we think about therapy as an ongoing tool to cope with, you know, late capitalism or whatever. Yeah, well, that's really important, isn't it? So, I mean, it's partly the idea of the cure, isn't it? And the idea of the therapy, you know, therapy actually curing something or whether it's the idea of therapy, you know, the term can just mean kind of remedial action to mitigate the effects of, you know, things. I mean, it's the same in medicine, isn't it? You know, you can cure a disease or you can just kind of give people something that makes them feel better without necessarily curing it. And they, the word therapy can, is applied to both. I, as prep for this podcast, I don't just turn up people, you know, as prep for this, I had to look through this pamphlet I've got called Red Therapy by uh, this sort of libertarian communist group called Big Flame released in the early 1970s. And it's really interesting, actually, that um, one of their problems is a little bit like the way Nadia set it up, where they were going, look, you know, we know that um, we need to have sort of like group processes, and we know that we need to to think through the relationship of therapy to politics. But it just it just happens that loads of loads of us, loads of members of this group, loads of people of the left at that point are in individual type therapies. And, you know, the way that they understood that was they didn't want to put off um, dealing with those things until after the revolution that they thought were coming. Uh But also the political groups just didn't have any sort of therapeutic, the political groups are involved in didn't have any sort of therapeutic function. You know, they didn't start from people's individual problems. And so their, their, their thing was very much more the sort of therapy as life coping in order to be able to embark on wider politics. And that's what they were disgruntled about, the separation of those two things, the separation of like, you know, this individual therapy, which will get us through and allow us to become political activists, whereas the political activism didn't incorporate that. And what they were looking for is a way to incorporate that. And so they experimented with like sort of group therapies, et cetera. I've no idea how successful that was. I just thought it was interesting. It was a, it was a very yeah, similar they've sort actually of problem. Thought about it. I mean, it's interesting that they've come to it. And I think, I mean, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, They're, they talk about it as therapy rather than as consciousness raising, which I think seem to be two different ways at coming at, when you're talking about, I think uh, in this case, we're talking about therapy as uh, life skill or therapy as remedial or therapy as coping rather than as breakthrough and, and cure. Am I right? Because if we're talking about these are the ways that you're able to to live better as an activist or cope better, I think it's interesting that, you know, with the work that we've done, we've come at it from much more of a collective, a consciousness raising kind of frame, even though, of course, both overlap. Yeah, in that pamphlet, they, they'd come through or at least some of them had had experiences of consciousness raised as part of the feminist movement in the 70s. Right, okay. And, and the, the idea in that was that they were saying, look, you know, individual experiences or individual internal work, if you want to put it that way, uh, was basically sort of looked down on and like the emphasis was much was was too much on structural causes if you want if 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 you want to put it that way. And so their intervention was to try to rebalance that in some way so that you could take more account of what we might think of as individual ways in which sort of mental distress is is processed but without sort of losing the idea that mental distress it must be caused at least partly and indeed quite a lot of mental distress you know it must be caused by the sort of social structures that we're involved in and you can sort of you can understand that that has to be true but because you can look at the differences in in reporting of mental distress amongst different groups basically you're much more likely to, to experience mental distress if you're poorer than richer 
much more likely to experience it if you're if you're unemployed in particular. And then in the spirit level, which is this book about inequality yeah. from um, Kate Pickett and Richard some, Wilkinson. Richard Wilkinson, thank you. <laughs> like they're, they're, they've got a big thing in there about how you know the 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 more unequal a society you live in, the much the more likely you are to uh, be, become mentally unwell in some way. See, I this is it. So this is actually coming at my problem from another way because my political head wants to agree with you because we have similar politics around this stuff. I just don't know to the extent that I believe that based on my own experience with psychotherapy. I just think there's a percentage of shit that happens to people, which of course in practice becomes related to you know the structural conditions that we live in, but that's not where all mental distress comes from. It just isn't. So I guess I'm a little bit wary of totally agreeing with that position. You know, people go through stuff that happen in their families and stuff that they see and stuff that they witness, which are traumatic, which are not as wrapped up with the structural and societal issues as, as other things, like, you know, saying capitalism is distressing or patriarchy is distressing. Well, yeah, no, I, I sort of agree with you. But basically, the thing you have to account for is similar events can have very, very different impacts on different people. And, and like a lot of that is to do with the sort of resources you've of got. I like Some of that is actually like like cash resources, but it's also like psychological resources. And a lot of that is to do with your position in society and the, the meaning you give to those events, how you incorporate them into a life story, etc., those are not the same throughout society, if you know what I mean. You know, that's of course, they're not the same from people from the same income bracket or, you know what I mean? It's Obviously, there are individuals and, and the social, it's very complex mix altogether. But you can make sort of, you can look at like statistical evidence and say there must be some level of social impact on all of this. Not that all distress is social probably is actually because we're social beings but you know what i mean i'm not it's not as simple as saying oh yeah capitalism causes mental distress and if we remove capitalism mental distress will go away that's just not simply not true you know living is very hard i mean the picket and uh, wilkins and stuff uh, i did when that book came out i ended up doing panels with each of them at different places um one of them was in ghent of all places and you know, it's, it was really it's an interesting argument they've got about how the relationship between social inequality and stress. But they're also they had a really weak sort of theoretical understanding. I thought of well, what the connections might be, and yeah, there is a, there's, there is a, there's a certain tradition of kind of Marxian critique that would say, well, for example, you might be more likely to suffer certain kinds of social distress if you come from you know certain sections of like the professional classes or the petty bourgeois than if you come from a sort of working class community in which there's very solid you know, high levels of social capital like a solid high levels of solidarity you know high levels of kind of mutual support and uh, and the kind of neuroticizing effects in some ways of of capitalist culture you know are kind of more experienced by people who are more in some ways less defended from it by these kind of layers of community. I mean, it's a dangerous argument line about reasoning to go down because it takes you to a place called blue labour. I mean, my own experience would suggest there's something to it, to be honest. One of the reasons why individual remedial psychotherapy is so much associated with the sort of professional classes, obviously it is for really obvious reasons. Like you're more likely to 
want to do like you know psychoanalysis if you you know if you've got a degree and you, you think of yourself as belonging to this culture that it's part of but my experience would also suggest there is something to that there is something to the idea that we'll it was kind of emerged as a, as a set of practices designed to treat the effects of you know the fact that it's true that you know, shit happens in people's families the shit that happens in people's families for example is going to hurt you more if you're completely dependent on your family you're living in this in a social context in which you know you're not in a kind of extended network of neighbors relations families you're just you, the nuclear family is this is this very kind of contained unit and almost all of the kind of socializing that children do is kind of within it to some extent and you're very sort of dependent on it to some extent like the in, intrafamilial relations in the nuclear family they can become you know much more highly connected to use the psychoanalytic jargon like there's much more kind of emotional energy invested in them than they are in other contexts you know and i think there is something to that uh, actually but also like do you feel like there have been you know like this is anecdotal i don't have any proof of this but i feel like there's shit loads of people on the left who are in therapy or have been in therapy or counseling or whatever various different things you'd call it and i don't feel like that's been talked about like as a phenomenon is this because you know therapy is more available and it's less taboo and so more people in general are doing it is it that generationally things are a lot less stable and predetermined for people so people feel more lost or mentally unhinged whichever way that is or is just being left-wing really intense and a difficult life choice at the moment in 21st century britain i just don't think it's true that like, there's more people in there like you can talk about a thing called the left that coincides in some way with the set of people in therapy i mean I, I i i might be wrong but i'm guessing that 90 percent of the people you know on the left they belong to the sort of professional classes in some way i mean i don't think that's not true but but a lot of them yeah do you, do you think there's any kind of demographic sort of consistency to the people you you're identifying as yes left? so i'm talking about people i mean i wouldn't say professional classes so i wouldn't define it that way i would define it as people who are for lack of a better word, who are activists rather than people who have left-wing views. So if I... Do you know many activists who don't have a degree? Um, yes. I wouldn't say it's the majority, but yes. So hold on, let me finish my point if you're, if you're going to ask that question. So I have a wide-ranging set of friends from all around the world and in the UK, people who are in politics, who are not in politics, etc. And again, this is an observation. It's not statistical. I've not done a whole study of this, but it feels like looking at, at it, people who have been active in politics in the last five years, there's more of them in therapy than my friends who are not active in politics, who might be left-wing. They might have a similar analysis, but they're not involved in anything. So that's, that's a total hypothesis. And of course, it might not be true. People who are activists might well take action about feelings of mental distress, which means going to therapy, while other people might not take action on that and go to therapy. I'll just say that um, of the young people I know, that the, the, the levels of mental distress up to sectioning that goes on, it's just shocking. It's just so prevalent. And statistically as well, you know, the, the number of, of young people reporting mental distress, particularly over the last couple of years, but, but going back further as well, it, you know, just seems to be huge. So that's not the same as being in therapy. 
you know a lot of these lot, a lot of people don't have the resources to go to therapy and there's there's virtually no provision via the state of a credibly small amount of provision via the, via the state and what there is is cbt which i'm sure lots of people do find useful but um yeah so i'm, I'm just not i'm not sure i mean I, I i think it's much more likely to be that people who are political activists have the sorts of resources that to be able to go and you know not necessarily financial resources but the resources the resourcefulness uh, uh to be able to go and take action about mental distress whether that means that um, there is more mental distress amongst people on the left i'm not i'm not sure there's a track called outroduction to diagnosis from uh, the 1997 album by hip-hop producer prince paul and the album is called psychoanalysis it's a really good album Prince Paul was the producer on the the classic uh, De La Soul album, for example, Three Feet High and Rising, and it was really Prince Paul's, Paul's production that made it. He's a sort of um, underrated figure of the golden age hip hop, and this is his probably his most his best known kind of solo work. So, with, with the whole argument, is like, is it social? Is it individual? Like, there's just this huge element of chance that happens as you go through life do you know what i mean you step one way and not another way and you could get you know knocked down by somebody do you know what i mean there's just this huge amount of chance and then you've got the existential sort of problems of life which is death basically well i think i think it is something we'll have to come back to later isn't it i mean because the general increase in kind of you know people having poor mental health is is, is really striking especially for young people i then think it touches on one of the dis- a distinction nadia w- was trying to point to like on the one hand there's people having specific issues which are to do with very specific life experiences and on the other hand there's people feeling genuinely unhappy because you know the future looks really bleak and because you know um and because levels of capitalist alienation are very high and you know sources of optimism and sources of kind of collective joy of are low and I think those are two, they're obviously not completely unrelated. I mean, they, and I think one of the things we're, we're trying to tease out is the relationship between those two sets of things. But I also think we are in a historical situation where people who have had perfectly happy, stable childhood and have been given all those resources, when faced with the nature of the historical moment we're in, can you know suffer really debilitating distress. You know, my observation about one of the things that's been going on in the sort of therapeutic community and in the kind of the wider kind of psychological and psychiatric profession over the past couple of decades is a real difficulty in confronting that situation. Because the thing that people really are worried that, I mean, that by far the most common mental health diagnosis today is depression. And that didn't used to be the case. There used to be other things, you know, and that's partly because terminologies change and it's partly because the way in which symptoms are classified, etc., change. But there is still a pretty I think there's I think there's a good argument from the evidence I've seen that there is a genuine, like significant increase in, in clinical depression. Clinical depression is di- is quite different from like the kind of symptoms that, for example, psychoanalysis was kind of invented to, to treat. 
you can talk about the history of things like mel- melancholy and melancholia, etc. But even, you know, I mean, people who like to do histories of this stuff, they like to go back and go on about how in the Renaissance, there's, there's all this literature about melancholy. But, but I kind of take issue, I don't think melancholy, like as described in the early modern literature, which is usually to do with kind of failed romances and stuff, it isn't the same as the sense of kind of existential despair that is at the root of a lot of people's clinical depression these days. And my, my guess is, my sort of gambit would be, depression is not something that can actually can be addressed by conventional by the therapies, but the therapies that were developed over the 20th century for the purposes of helping people who are experiencing a set of psychological symptoms and issues, which were fairly typical of, in particular, as I keep saying, of people in the professional classes sort of undergoing the particular kind of historical dislocations produced by sort of advanced industrialization and that kind of thing so i think all these things can be true at the same time it can be true at the same time that like someone you know someone today could well be still find it very very helpful to have psychoanalysis or whatever if they're experiencing a set of conditions which are pretty similar to the conditions which somebody belonging to a similar social group might have experienced 80 years ago and it can also be true that there's a whole load of people, like to me, including friends of ours, you know, including people with loss, who are experiencing a quite different set of symptoms because of a quite different set of circumstances, which are much more difficult to treat using all those methods. I, I mean, I've had, it was only six months, which, you know, within the tradition is considered almost nothing. And it wasn't kind of everyday classical psychofreudian analysis. It was like once a week, psychoanalytic-based therapy, uh, with a therapist who was very good and um, was very kind of theoretically informed, very kind of was the, the most, she was the, the best person I could find in London, really, who, who like knew about things like sort of post-structuralist theory, so that I wouldn't feel like I was just <laughs> talking to someone who didn't, didn't understand. I can't believe you found the person to match that, or at least partly match that. Wow, amazing. She And she was good. and But I only did it as like a matter of course. I did it because, you know, Joe was pregnant and I'd always said, I, I don't, to be honest, what I'd always said was, if I'm going to become a dad, I'm going to do at least six months of therapy just to make sure. And if and if it's going to be a boy, I'll have to do at least two years. Because, <laughs> because like, I've had enough trouble with my own masculinity without having to be responsible for anyone else's. If it's a girl, because I always felt, you know, I had two youngest, I grew up kind of, you know, with two younger sisters. And, you know, at some times in our childhood, I had to do a lot of the work of, of helping to care for them, actually. So I, so I felt like I knew how to look after little girls, but how to look after a little boy didn't. Luckily, we found out uh, it was it was a girl and the other one, the next one was a girl. So I, just, so I only did the six months and it was good. And it was very focused on family history and it was useful and it was but it was informed by an approach which is conscious that, you know, even if you're talking about your own personal experience, then... You know, the, the family is still a social unit. It's still social experience to an, a large extent. But it was also, it was fairly conventional therapy because it was mostly focused on those sort of familial relationships and kind of untying them and, you know, sort of working out where you might be holding resentment or where you might have certain kinds of insecurity that should, don't need to be there anymore. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was really useful. It was really good, like, as, as far as it went. I also felt like there were real kind of limits to it. There were limits to it to the extent that, you know, this was obviously a therapist coming from, from you know, although it was very theoretically rich, it was a kind of fairly classical school, so not someone into sort of group therapy. And I was pretty insistent that there were limits to how far I could talk about the experience, my experience of growing up, because it was so involved with my sisters. And I felt that really 
there were a whole set of issues that could only ever get resolved if me and my sisters talked about them. And not because there was issues between me and my sisters either, but because just our whole experience of growing up and having fairly traumatic childhood in various ways was, was always felt like a shared experience. It never felt like it was happening to one of us, like individually. It felt like it was happening to the three of us together. And there was kind of a limit there. And there was also a limit around things to do with the body because, you know, both theoretically and just practically, and, and we're going to come on to this in the show, like I, I'm really convinced that, you know, things like exercise like really do literally affect people's brain state. And my therapist didn't really want to talk about that and wanted to talk about, you know, what exercise symbolised to me. And I, and I sort of was quite, you know... And to me, that was that was really a kind of Lacanian. That was a Lacanian talking to a Deleuzian, you know, in philosophical terms. You know, saying, <laughs> you know, what what does what does the exercise mean? I said, what it means. What it means is it affects what my body can it's do. Is what I do. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's what it means. <laughs> I like that. But it was good, you know. I wouldn't, uh, and I would never dissuade anyone from doing it. And and it might have been, you know, I could see how it could have been really useful if, like, if I'd had more serious kind of issues. I'm not totally sure she wouldn't have been able to treat some forms of sort of existential depression. You know, she had quite a good line on the need to accept our mortality, you know, for example. as a She she, she thought I wasn't accepting my mortality, which I still haven't and I don't intend to. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> At least you've got a position. <laughs> well, that's a nice story. I like that story, Jeremy. Thanks. I, I realised that Jeb's got two sisters and I've got two sisters. But Jem's the oldest and I'm the middlest. Mm. I've got a younger and an older sister. My role in the family was always as the sort of peacemaker and I'd use humour to sort of solve the the problems and ease the tensions and connect up the, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, listeners, like my role on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> effing right. I mean, one of my all-time favourite tracks, actually, by anyone is the Raincoats fairy tale in the supermarket. I don't know how we've managed to get this far into the show without me ever uh, playing the Raincoats. And the song, you know, includes lines like uh, the immortal line, cups of tea are a clock, a clock, a clock, a clock. And it's just such as kind of, for me, it's one of the great kind of musical investigations of sort of everyday sort of anxiety and just everyday, just everydayness. And it's kind of inter interior experience. I don't know why, I, I don't, maybe it's not obviously to do with therapy, but it is to do with, you know, it's sort of to do with everything. I saw the raincoats at um, an All Tomorrow's Parties about five years ago or something. They were great. You know the story. You know, you know the story about you know because there was a revival of interest in them in the early nineties because of Nirvana, wasn't it? Yeah, because Kurt, well, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. Kurt Cobain's a big fan of the Raincoats from the early eighties. It's like feminist post punk band, and they split up and become completely obscure. And the singer Anna De Silva was working in an antique shop in Notting Hill. And Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love like walk into this antique shop and ask them to reform and support Nirvana on tour. And they were supposed to support them, but then the, the tour was cancelled because C Cobain took, killed himself. And considering how much like Cobain's issues seem to have been tied to his sort of his intense dislike of the way in which Nirvana were heard as this kind of hyper masculinist music, and this, these were this kind of archetypical sort of feminist post punk band, like they're really sort of it's really fascinating. And then the albums all get reissued, and there was a big wave of interest in them, and you know they were really. Uh, they're really sort of unique 
they're a unique uh, sort of musical project, the Raincoats. I just, I mean, they're one of my all-time favorite bands. They might be my favorite band. Like if you know, most of my favorite music isn't made by bands. They might be my favorite band. <laughs> Yeah, I've really, I've really not had a lot of experience. Uh, I had a one one counselling session, and it was, it was, I, I'd got given three counselling sessions because my partner Alice was ill at the time, and I took one of them, uh, and I got to admit, I found it really, I couldn't, I just couldn't get anything out of it, and I, I like think I was just thinking about what Jen was saying about how his therapist was a, a, a sort of Der- Derridean, Deleuzean, and like when I think about it, I felt as though I had been. I found I couldn't talk about myself, or I felt as though I was being—I I was trapped in a in a role, the role of the patient, if you know what I mean. And I just kept thinking about what the expectations of the counselor were, and how I was going to communicate through those expectations. You know what I mean? I found it pretty and uh, and satisfying, and like I, I felt as though I basically played a role, and I hadn't really managed to communicate anything to myself or to the. Or to the counselor. You, I mean, you, I should probably go back and have the other two sessions and see where that got me. But um. did you feel like it was anything of it was because you were talking to a stranger? Because you were speaking just now about the expectations and speaking through them and the role. So, is it that these were the kind of things you would have said to a friend or to, you know, a family member, and you didn't want to say them there, or mm. did that play into it at all? Do you know what? I think I did it all wrong because it, the, this counsellor was also giving counselling to my partner, Alice. So that's oh, probably right. a real no-no. Yeah, isn't that it? is. Yeah, I thought that's a yeah. rule. You don't do that. Or maybe yeah, it isn't. Well, I yeah. broke that rule. Okay, there we go. Yeah, so that's the point of, or at least one of the points of like the, of, of counselling, isn't it? It's not a friend. It's not somebody attached to you. So you can just say what you say what you like, basically. Yeah. Well, I found I couldn't do that. Not in, a, not in one session. Perhaps that's some sort of resistance or something like that. I'm not. I'm not sure. But to be honest, I didn't think I'd get I'd get through that in two sessions, <laughs> and um, it was one of those where yeah, I don't think uh, it wasn't something like oh I want to go to counselling. It was oh these fret sessions are there, you can have them, so you should take them, which is probably the completely the wrong motivations to do any sort of counselling or therapy. Mm. Really. Um, but that is my experience of uh, that's my experience of counselling or therapy. I've not I've not had any more apart from obviously talking to friends in the in the pod- and doing this podcast. Uh, Yes, I actually yes, doing this podcast has been most useful to me. I'm glad I had this opportunity to work on myself. <laughs> For me, I'd say therapy or like individual psychotherapy like completely changed my life. And by that, I guess I mean my head. My head runs at a million miles an hour and I'm always having conversations with myself and others. And through therapy, I guess a little bit, I've managed to quiet that down. If I put a positive spin on it, I would say I've got a rich internal life which I just think is also madness um so I I feel like I'm often mad and speaking to other people about how my brain processes work people say oh that's really exhausting you must be really tired so I know that at least some people their brains don't function 
like mine. I'm not saying I'm unique or anything, but but definitely that's the the background to it. Like I'd say part of feeling mad sometimes is to do with being a woman in the world. And like we've discussed, it's partly capitalism, but I also think it's partly my genes and definitely my life experiences. So that's a bit that's a bit of background. So let me think. Okay, so in 2012 or about 2013, two events occurred that kind of knocked me for six. And I clearly, looking back at it, did not have the psychological tools to like know how to deal with this or, or or what happened. In terms of describing how I felt, I guess I felt like somebody had died, although nobody did. I felt like bits of my body were being dismembered, but not literally, not in the literal. I know there's a syndrome where people actually feel like their arms don't exist, so not literally. But I had this kind of deep, deep sadness and I woke up with it. I lived with it throughout the day. It was at work, pub, friends. I felt like my chest was ripped open at some points. And the key thing is I thought this would go away. So I thought if I do all of the right things for myself, you know, like some of the stuff we touched on, like exercise, seeing friends, you know, eating properly, whatever, like heartbreak or heartache or, you know, a breakup, it would kind of go away because time was a healer. But it didn't and it got worse and it came and went in waves. So eventually I started calling what I call episodes where I'd kind of wake up with a deep depression that wouldn't go away and I felt like I was hanging by a thread and I think more and more that I was gonna fall and no one was gonna catch me but I had to like be strong that was my overriding feeling and this would go on for like a few days and then I'd wake up one morning and feel completely bright and sunny and absolutely fine as if none of that, that had happened um, and I it got to the point where I didn't know who I was gonna wake up as I couldn't figure out what the trigger was or what was the thing that was making this happen. Um, But I also noticed that I lost my ability to cry completely. Like I'd never really been a big crier, but was aware that I couldn't even shed a single tear. So there was something that was kind of going on. And then things started to happen. Like I started to confuse people and dates and not so much of that happened, but these were all kind of the alarm bells. But it wasn't until I got the physical symptoms, which uh, to cut a very long story short, like I had a what I thought was a growth under my jaw. It wasn't. It was a muscle that was enlarged because I was clenching my jaw so tight, which I didn't realize that I was doing. It's still something that I grapple with now. Um I had to sleep with the, let me think, with the duvet. I mean, I'm laughing now, but it wasn't funny at the time. With a duvet stuffed in my mouth because I would hold my jaw so tight. And then my gums started bleeding. And um, I went and took antibiotics again and again and again. It still kept happening until the dentist and a GP told me, you need to see a psychotherapist. So that was the first time that that happened because I it turns out that the the gum bleeding which sounds crazy thinking about it now was completely psychological because of stress. Um and it took me all the way I think in 2017 when I stopped I didn't stop partying or doing politics. I chilled out a little bit and I started uh, searching for psychotherapists at the end of 2016 and then I ended up going to therapy weekly for for 14 months it was the absolute best intervention and thing I've done for myself and I think the, the main thing is I managed to develop tools that I did not have before 
And this was one thing that my therapist taught me that I want to share that I just thought was brilliant because I learned that there were things in my subconscious that were tugging at me like a child at a supermarket. And the more you ignore it and tell it you can't have the sweets and push it away and shout at it, the more it shouts back at you and tugs at your sleeve and throws tantrums. And so I learned the, the psychological tools to be able to listen and say, yes, okay, I see what you're trying to tell me I need to do. Or yes, I'm listening, but I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. And I learned, you know, and I was guided through facing some really dark shit and some really, really difficult shit to the extent that I can talk about it now, like, like I can say this stuff completely, basically emotionless. And I learned things like to ask for help because I didn't realize through this whole process, I had told no one because I didn't know that I could. So even though I was a really good listener to friends, I just completely did not, I had a, a complete mental block on sharing anything to do uh, with myself. Um, so it was a complete, complete game changer for my life and like absolutely transformed me. I mean, at the end of that, I guess I'd say like, I'm still a massive control freak, <laughs> but, and, but I'm a much more evolved human. Um, and I still have an occasional episode, but it's not like every week or every month or whatever. And I'm more contented and I can do the one thing that I definitely couldn't do six years ago, which is to think of the future and not be in some kind of massive fucking constant whirlpool or like skirting an abyss or something so and that's it really but I just wanted to share that it really really worked for me and yeah that's 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 what happened with me in therapy I've never heard of somebody getting referred to a psychoanalyst from that yeah 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 I mean kid you not this has this has happened because when he said you have trench mouth I was like what the absolute fuck is this? And I thought my mouth smells like a trench, but that is not what it actually means. It means trench mouth is a condition that they call trench mouth because it happened to soldiers in the trenches because of stress. It doesn't sound like a sort of like classical, classical psychoanalysis. I don't know. I mean, you're talking about strictly classical psychoanalysis. Like nobody has that anymore. Like nobody can afford that was only ever a luxury for very rich people. I mean, there was a sofa, but I wasn't lying down on it. But it was a really nice sofa. But classical, classical was like you went five times a week. You know, it just became your life. Like I, the only people I've known who've done it were training to be psychoanalysts, or they were academics who were completely like psychoanalysis was like their whole theoretical orientation on everything. Like I've never known like a normal, like like an ordinary person a lay person just go and have that kind of Freudian therapy because I don't think it's just no one can afford it anymore. So I think that's as close as it gets really. Moving away from me and back to like the general topic, that's very different to thinking about therapy as I want a space to be able to talk to talk generally. It's like, it is shit, a, I've got to intervene. <laughs> Something's got to happen here, yeah, you know? It's an intervention rather than just sort of coping. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not going to say anything about that other than it's good and it should be available to people. I mean, I mean, as far as there's a political issue around that, it's that you used to be able to get access to that kind of therapy, like on the National Health Service, like a lot more easily than, than you can now. And along, you know, along with austerity, but also sort of changes in, intellectual fashion uh, that kind of psychoanalytic or what you've described as i understand it would be described either as psychoanalytic or psychodynamic talking mm -hmm. 
and there was a big move and it really began under new labor and it's kind of carried on there's been a big move to basically replace that with cognitive behavioral which is basically just telling people to get their shit together it was about 10 years ago there was a lot of controversy around this and like people i knew were sort of protesting about the kind of the attempt to roll out cbt and, and because it's seen as being it's both it's not a kind of depth psychology it's just kind of behavioral modification meaning it doesn't doesn't really try to deal with kind of internal things and some people would see that as an individualistic frame of reference but i would say look i mean psychoanalysis acknowledges part is partly about acknowledging the way in which social relations kind of constitute us on a very deep level on a very profound level and that has to be thought about in a careful way and so so i would sort of reject the idea that you know somehow like debt psychology is necessarily individualist and and I, and I think the protest against substituting CBT for any kind of depth psychology were, you know, saw it as both a sort of, you know, as kind of replace a kind of, you know, deep, profound experience of therapy like you had an idea with, you know, something much more functional, something much more instrumental and something much cheaper for the state. Uh, as I understand it as well, though, I mean, one of the issues is that the CBT is really good at treating some yeah. things. And they are some of the things that people have historically tried to go to kind of depth psychology for that it's not really that good for. And like it, so sometimes it is, so sort of both things can be Do you true. have an example, be, Jeremy? I'm trying to think of one. Uh, I'm trying to think of examples, really. And I think it probably is more to do with just stuff like, you know, like I referred to earlier, like procrastinating a lot, like just not getting your work or pattern Or patterned behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, well, those are patterned behaviours, yeah. that's the thing. And I think I think that's also I guess maybe I would even say a bit from my own experience. Like it it can be the case that somebody that you know depth psychology can try to find kind of deep you know internal or, or biographical reasons for the fact that somebody has just got into a bad groove and they need to get out of it. You know that that can also happen. Exactly, isn't it that thing that you could basically say? I mean, this is crude, but to say that CBT is basically saying it's just about the way you look at it which is kind of that weird postmodern kind of position on... Well, it's a bit, and there's also kind of neuro-linguistic programming, which is like the more, the more extreme version of, of that. My impression is that a lot of the time now, if people get referred to CBT, basically that what they get told to do is like an audit of their thought processes. And it is the same thing you might well do, like in, in, an early, in early sessions of, of a depth psychology therapy. It's just that you just don't do the rest of it. So and it partly is it's just a sort of cut price way to try and get people to do do a little bit of like reflection on their thought right. processes rather than just accepting them themselves. And, and incidentally, that's also exactly what mindfulness has been used for. This comes back to the thing about depression, actually. You know, in, in terms of things we talk about a lot on the show, mindfulness-based therapy and psilocybin-based therapy are like the two big, like trendy interventions over the past few years i'm aware of and in fact i think i think the thing that they both claim some unusual level of success in treating is is depression actually now that i think about it and it claims to be able to be, treat depression by basically getting you to sort of distance yourself reflexively from your thought processes so to realize that yeah your thought processes you know might be heading in a very dark direction and there might be reasons for that but it doesn't mean you have to sort of allow your whole subjectivity to be, de to be determined by those thought processes and they might not even be sort of real descriptions of reality you know and i sort of think um i don't know enough about it really to have a lot to say about it i mean my, my sense of it is that that is a sort of quite that is quite a potent intervention for people 
you know, with depression, partly because it's derived from classical Buddhism, and classical Buddhism is predicated on the assumption that human existence can, totally sucks. <laughs> it just totally sucks, and you just have to learn. You just have to accept that it sucks, and you have to try and train your brain to expect it to suck. Stop being surprised when it sucks, and and, and ultimately stop caring that it sucks. And so, um, and yeah, that's what it means, really, to kind of achieve fucking self-realization or enlightenment in the in the classical Buddhist tradition. I think one of the things that we we wanted to talk about is like the importance of like having something. I think you called it. What did you What did you call it? Everybody needs something. Yeah, yeah. everybody needs something, and so I guess we're not t totally buying into that. It's very useful to think about, but like in, in the reality of the world, like you want to get out of our heads, right? You want to do something that takes you somewhere else. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the whole point of Buddhist practice classically is, is to be, is to not need anything. It's to get to the point where you don't need anything and anything else to make you feel good or to to cope. And that line, everybody needs something. You know, it's a line from Gil Scott Heron's song, "The Bottle," which is mostly a song about kind of alcoholism and how it's a social evil. But at the end, it's this really, it's this kind of you know moment of you know, sort of poetic acknowledgement at the end, at the end of the song where they say everybody needs something kind of acknowledging that, you know, people will turn to things like alcohol, like, um, as a way of coping with the world and, and everybody needs some help coping with the world. And, and the reason I wanted to talk about that is because I do sort of think, you know, my own, and again, my, it's, it's a casual observation just from living in the world and, and knowing people, but in my experience, the people who've got themselves into real trouble with, with mental health things, um, issues especially in terms of kind of sort of clinical depression they couldn't get out of were people who didn't i'm not advising kind of alcohol as a solution to problems but you know i can, I can think of at least one person who i just i did sometimes think if they could just relax and have a beer like once a week like a lot of people do like i don't i don't really drink anything but if they you, know, you do they, yoga though yeah exactly if they could just do that they'd probably be much happier you know, uh, and they didn't do any exercise, and they didn't go out clubbing, and they didn't really do any. They didn't really do any of these things. Their life was one kind of devoid of kind of everyday escapism. And I think kind of everyday escapism, you know, is a sort of way in which people, you know, cope. And, and I, you know, you can say something really similar about football. For Keir, having a beer and going to the football are obviously kind of important therapeutic exercises in some way, aren't they? Should we talk about the other things that can be therapy that are not psychotherapy? I think we want to talk about like the body and exercise, but also football and music, right? Yeah. Exactly. I think I think that that metaphor of getting out of your head is a really useful one, isn't it? I mean, it, we associate it with um, getting blind drunk yeah. or, or taking lots of drugs, basically. But literally, um, but in a more literal sense, it's 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 useful. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, you know, uh, psilocybin therapy being being a growth area lo alongside mindfulness is pretty interesting because one of the ways in which sort of psychedelics work is to it's a sort of slip over the sort of like the habitual patterns of, of thought that you have, uh, pre pre presumably on a sort of, you know, real material level, 
you know the, the patterns of neurons that that fire and build up habit and all these sorts of things and all of a sudden all of your neurons are firing at the same time and so you can have you can find new ways to think about things i'm presuming that's what how how psilocybin therapy therapy works but yeah you can you could you'd have to de- get that from from drugs you know you can get that from sort of running and like getting that getting those in hot dolphin highs or you can just get it through collectivity basically which is where we what we get from when you go to watch football and you get really tied up in it and you just you know everything you've thought about all week just sort of goes and then you get washed over by the emotions of of the crowd and there's obviously a large part of that about going out dancing but on, on top of that you're also doing the physical exercise you've got the endorphin rush you're probably also doing some drugs hey that all helps as well and you've got the collectivity one of the big tragedies of the of the last 18 months has has been that that collective moments have been impossible you know which is why there's been all this sort of outburst of joy we're recording just during the 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 euros the european championship well, it's still interesting because I'm because I'm, Nadia and I both got, we both got really interested when we were preparing this, and we're still really interested, aren't we, in this distinction, or if it, or is it a distinction between specific set of sy- symptoms to treat and and just general coping? Part of the issue is that for a lot of people, they're not really sure. Like, it's not clear. Like, mental distress exists on a continuum from just generally being fed up with how shit everything is to having some really specific symptoms that that are treatable and are kind of intervenable in. I think a lot of the time it's by no means all it might not even be most but I think a significant component of some people's mental distress is just from straight up not getting any exercise like it's just not it's just not good for you to like not get any exercise and and I also I just and I think as a society there's almost our society conspires to sort of deny how much exercise people actually need a lot of people like to feel happy and healthy because if we really realized the gap between how much exercise our bodies are still sort of designed to get and how much we actually get then we would realize how that we're even more overworked than we think we are i mean personally like i wasn't sporty at all growing up i only really got into sort of exercise quote unquote exercise when i was doing my phd like back in the days when you know doing a PhD could mean you were just being funded to write a book all day and I had a bit of teaching but mostly you know I just had to get out of the house like you know otherwise I was just at home all day working so I started going swimming every day and I and I did sort of come to the conclusion that until you were doing sort of more than about two hours a day exercise it was more optimal to spend more time doing exercise than more time working because it was just so beneficial to sort of how relaxed I was now how, how much I could concentrate and and this sort of thing and I and I sort of think, the, you know, the implications of that, though, are pretty dramatic. Like if it's, I mean, some people would say that only applies to me, but if it only applies to me, if, you know, I grew up in a totally unsporty family, like I, me I grew too. up hate, hating sport at school. And in fact, I sort of really resent the way in which like PE and sport were taught in school to my generation, because we weren't, you know, sport for boys at school was just supposed to be something you were supposed to already have learned from your dad. You know, nobody ever, uh, this is a whole other subject, isn't it? Like I didn't, I didn't realize I actually enjoyed playing football till I was like fifteen because I, I thought it was just this weird torture you got subjected to because because nobody ever explained to me how to, how to do it because I didn't come from a family where we played football. Um, probably cut that. We'll do a whole episode about football one day. 
No, this is vital work. We're getting this is excellent therapy. We're not going no, well, any the, of the this. The point being, I hate it. I was totally unsporty, and it was it was purely as a sort of scientific experiment. It was partly because I I did I had a mate who was really into running, and we're like we used to go raving a lot, and he would always insist, look, it's the endorphins more than the the ecstasy or the music you get that we're getting into. And in the end, I sort of thought, well, I'll, I'll test it. You know, I'll see if I can you know, get into some kind of exercise. And it turned out, and okay, he was totally right. But but the thing is, if it's true that, well, everybody really, you know, it should be a human right to get two hours exercise a day. Well, given that everybody's overworked already in our society, that's an, that's whacking on another 14 hours a week, like less work everybody should be doing because they should be in the pool or walking or whatever they want to do. I think people don't want to face up to what a depressing thought that is. So rather than face up to what a depressing thought that is, People just buy into it. a lot of people, especially people from the left, you know, you know, and, and people who were not sporty at school or sporty, or people who don't want to be told how their bodies should look. I think people buy into this really sort of anti-exercise yeah. narrative um, for understandable reasons. But I think it's a con, really. I think we're being conned by a society which doesn't want us to realise that we do need like a couple of hours exercise a day like to be really sort of... I, I agree. What did you call it? The kind of culture of self... Whatever self okay, oh, so, again, oh health and efficiency. Yeah. So the the problem is is that a critique of the health and efficiency and whole wellness industry is like completely valid and makes sense and should form part of an anti capitalist critique. But some people use that use it in a way that builds in that whole like, well, we shouldn't be you know I, I don't give shit about exercise because it's part of that conceptualization. Whereas actually. I mean, I the three of us agree. Like, three of us are well into, but aerobic exercise. I think. Yeah, we're we're wellness gurus. <laughs> we're health goth. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, we are. My advice on people on exercise is always as well. Is just I do just think of it as a drug. I mean, my coping strategy for late capitalism all revolves around exercise, and it just revolves around saying, yeah, things are objectively fucked. Yeah, you know, you're going to be depressed. Like if you if you just realise what's going on, so you've got to do something. You're either going to get beyond antidepressants or become an alcoholic or become a smackhead. And like the safest thing you can do is just be, be an endorphin addict. You know, just accept. You know, just you're drugging yourself. You're doing hard exercise with the sole purpose of drugging yourself into being able to cope with all this bullshit. Because if you don't, that I mean, this is this is why for me that idea of that everybody needs something is sort of important. Because I think that for me, that is also a way of detaching, you know, exercise from a kind of narrative of health and efficiency. Yeah, agreed. And the kind of competitive, optimal, you know, self-optimization and, and body image. Like, I think I think we should just completely detach all discussion of exercise from issues around weight. You know, it's not about weight. Like, having weight problems might be a, one symptom of not having enough exercise, but that's not why we should say everyone should have the right to exercise. We should say everyone should have the right to exercise because it really has an effect on kind of mental health. Of course, there are some people, you know, some people... I've made comments about this in bits of writing before, and I'm supposed to be doing an article about it for the New Statesman in a couple of weeks. But, you know, some people really, really hate hated me saying this, and they hate me saying this because... People who suffer clinical depression, you know, one of the things, one of the effects is, you know, you can't motivate yourself to do something like exercise, like even if you know it's going to help. I'm not dismissing that at all. And I think, you know, and that does come back to the question of well, what, you know, what what can treat depression? Like what can help sort of clinical depression? And um, I don't know the answer. And I think it's pretty clear that I think things can help with clinical depression, but I think 
Well, I do think it's important to understand that to some extent, depression is a perfectly reasonable response to exactly exactly. If you just if you if you view depression as a clinical disease, a disease of the mind, and nothing to do with your surroundings, so that 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 pushes you down two completely different routes, in my view. I actually feel really strongly about this. And I know that some people really push back because it works for them to see depression as a disease. And I understand that a disease as you would, you know, have heart failure or whatever. And I understand why, like I understand, I just can't agree with it. Yeah, there are problems there around the the medicalization of like, of actually quite normal experiences, which is a, which is a problem. But I I think there, I, I think, and I think Jeremy's point about about um, two hours exercise—that's just Marxist orthodoxy, isn't it? That's just two hours rigorous, vigorous uh, hunting and fishing in the in the day, and then uh, a good ten hours of criticism. In the evening. But, um, <laughs> Well, we talked a lot about exercise and this is a track from this seminal uh, album by Burial and it's just called Endorphin. That, that point about um, you know, the health and efficiency, I think it does get us into, into more, into trickier territory because it does get us to that. Like one of the one of the things with therapy is like some sort of therapeutic narrative and a sort of wellness narrative is sort of the dominant ideology in some ways, and it is this it's the kind of therapeutic narrative that that sort of denies the social. Like you know, psych- psychoanalysis. It's not a sort of things are all in all in your head. It, you know, it is about relationships and past events and all this sort of stuff. Okay, it focuses very much on early childhood, and that they're probably are, later events in life probably have an impact as well. Uh, this gets us into the, into things such as self help and into positive psychology and all these sorts of things. The things that really do deny the social. It's what David Schmel calls magical voluntarism, as though within us is the is the possibility to change our lives, basically within our own individual resources. And of course, that is going to play a role. But social structures and social the possibilities and affordances of the sort of the social relations and the infrastructures we interact with they you know determine the direction of our lives as well as well as as just sort of luck like i always think about um oprah winfrey and she's one of these people who sort of who's who's done a lot to promote positive psychology and it gets to very very cruel and dangerous places so one of the people she has on her show is wrote that book the secret and so this comes from this long list of like positive psychology it's like the way that we think this is CBT neuro linguistic programming, but like weaponized in a way. Do you know what I mean? That like if you think positive thoughts, you'll have more positive life. It turns into you know you can manifest things through positive thinking and all this sort of stuff. Till it gets to the end when Rhonda Byrne is commenting on the two thousand and four South Asian tsunami and says it's the people who drowned. It was their own fault because they must have had tsunami type thoughts in their head. You know, I mean that's I mean? fucked up shit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't, I don't completely. I have to say, I don't completely. Again, it's one of those things, as with exercise, where you know, a kind of. <sighs> A can, you know, that stuff around like a can-do attitude. Like sometimes people do need to get a grip and have a can-do attitude to some things. It's the politics around that that are really problematic. But again, there's also like it's part of British culture as well to be quite anti that 
Americanism. And I think it would do a lot of people some good to have some of that. Uh, it's the politics of it that I have an issue with. Like, I think people have to be have to be agents in their lives as well. Like you can't just be yeah. at effect rather than at cause and everything terrible has happened to you and it's because of my class and it's because of, because of, because of. Like it doesn't help you, like even though all of those things might be true. So psychologically, it, it hel- I think it helps everyone to move to be slightly more at cause than at effect. But the point is, is that can you, can you just, is it just willpower? Can you just will yourself into being, into, into being an active, uh, you can't will yourself. No, you can't just will yourself, but it does start by believing that you can sometimes. Because if you're in a deep depression, for a lot of people, it's like, it's, it's the not being able to see, you know, and I can relate to that, not being able to see past the actual feeling that you're experiencing right now. And going back to what Jeremy was saying about, you know, Buddhism is not being able to see that this is a state and it will pass. Or, you know, if I change my physical condition or if I go for a run or whatever, this can shift. If you're stuck right here in the now then you don't have a belief in any kind of possibility and that's where i think that thinking is is useful it does start with how you think but you know yeah i mean this is a good point because it's also true i mean depression and feelings of helplessness are not things that capitalism just does to us by accident it does this to them in, in a very calculated way like all day long our enemies want us to be depressed they want us to be depressed more than they want us to be in any other state really and that is part of the complexity of thinking about these things from a radical perspective. It's like, on the one hand, we want to avoid any sort of responsabilization or any, any and, and magical voluntarism. On the other hand... You want we agency. Want, we, yeah, we want agency. And we want to recognize that our enemies are trying all the time to rob us of our agency and to make us feel like, you know, we, we can't, we're not capable of doing anything. And all those things are true at the same time. I mean, that's part of the difficulty of the situation, I think. And it, mm. it's partly why... You know, the theorists who've really tried to get into it in terms of the relationship between the psychic, the social and the political, people like Deleuze and Guattari end up producing these texts which seem to be kind of unreadable in their complexity because it is very complex. But it is really important and it has a sort of important history. You know, Gramsci writes somewhere about this. He writes about the, the idea of doing an inventory of the self where you try to kind of determine, work out all the different social, historical, psychological, personal, familial, emotional influences on you in a sort of dispassionate way. And I've often thought that would be, you know, that would be like a radical, where a radical CBT variant would kind of start from. It's a bit That's also like the, like the most radical form of consciousness raising, though, isn't it, really? Yeah, exactly, yeah. The other thing to think about is, because I think what Nadia was getting is, is where do you start? Because we should accept that it's a lot easier to do for an individual to do work on themselves and overcome certain problems in that way than it is to do work on social and material circumstances. Because that's, that's where you get into politics and that's where you get into having to overthrow very powerful forces. Do you know what I mean? So like, where do you start? Because the, 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 the point would be to link all of these things up, to link up sort of more therapeutic processes and understanding of yourself to, to political action. And like the, these two areas to, are kept too distinct. And the, the, when they have been brought into everyday life, they, they've done, they've done it, the, the banishment of politics, which is a lot of the CBT, neuro-linguistic programming and that sort of stuff. But I think, it, I think it goes back again to what we were just saying about agency. Like, do you see yourself as an agent of change or not? I would have said... 
when I was going through a hard time, I would see myself as an agent of change politically 100%, as I had since I was 19 and got involved in politics. So I was, I'd see myself as someone who can make social change and push for social change. And that is what I spent the vast majority of my time in work and outside work doing. But I didn't see myself as an agent of change for processes that were going on in my head. So in fact, for me, it was the other way around. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm the only one there. I think the vast majority of people maybe, or maybe not, you know, there's probably loads of other people who think, right, I want to change something about myself and how I think this is how I'm going to do because it doesn't, it doesn't work for me anymore. So this is how I'm going to do it. But I don't see that I have any effect on the world. That model exists as well. And then there's people who don't see themselves as agents of change of whatever. That's really interesting because I, when I think about it, I think it's I'm the opposite. I think my my own mental health is much more tied up with the ability to put, to make meaning out of the world and to 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 see myself, position myself in the world, and in that way to see myself as a, an active political agent. I that, like that and getting enough exercise seem to be the two things that I that that I need to be in place in order to to feel you know mentally good. And uh, yeah, so the the idea that like internal work inside my head is separate to those two things is something that just sort of didn't come up to me that might just be that I haven't faced up to it or it might just be that we have different ways you know we're, we're different in that way do you know what I mean but but yeah and then there are there are people in the world who are completely driven and I think talking about being driven and having that level of agency is always seen as like a capitalistic thing and I and I I think object to that like I I think people should be driven they just shouldn't be driven to do things in, in their lives and trample over other people in a really horrific way. And I don't think both things go together. I think that it's it's a hangover, at least culturally in the UK, from the kind of like left-wing welfare state job for life thing that you shouldn't be thinking, okay, what do I want to do in my life right now? And what do I want to do in my head right now? Like what's serving me and what isn't serving me? Well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think it's it's true. I mean, one of the features of living in kind of hyper-advanced capitalism is this sort of, you know, I think I've mentioned this before on the show, this experience of, you know, what I call compulsory reflexivity, and which is sort of, you're forced into a position of relative freedom, relative uncertainty, relative indeterminacy in all kinds of areas of life, like in sort of personal relationships, in work, you know, how we cope with that situation is is really what determines our mental health a lot of the time. I mean, this is an interesting point because we talked about CBT. Well, one of the people championing CBT was the psychologist Richard Layard, who's a big, who was kind of really associated with kind of positive psychology and and what you know what Will Davis called the happiness the happiness industry. But Layard was also was I remember this was a few years ago now. He was kind of a, you know he was he was one of the people Ed Miliband was sort of drawing on when he was trying to first make his break with New Labour because Layard was saying look people don't want choice in like public services people just want them to work you just make you're just stressing people out making them choose all the time because and that is a kind of indicator of the way in which you know you you can't separate these things from from politics and from the need to create institutions and I think. I mean, a lot of what we're saying ought to happen, in or would need to happen in order for really effective therapies to be available for people that weren't just palliatives that would ultimately make the situation worse, and and that were could address all of these issues from like you know in the personal, you know, familial biography to kind of socio political economic 
structures and change. I mean, for, for that for that kind of therapy to really be available to most people, you would need just a massively better funded, you know, public mental health service and that's and we don't have that it was an important part of the labor manifesto at the last two elections uh, probably won't be at the next one unless the current leadership changes okay i was just thinking about what you were saying and i think actually for me it's more that the big political events or the big positive political events kind of override like my own you know, mental struggles or whatever. So I feel like my my internal processes are overridden by kind of world political events. But I wouldn't say that I, I'm the same as you, as in um, it's what's happening in the world necessarily or what, what my effect is on, on the world that makes me feel more mentally happy or stable or whatever. I think a sort of Deleuzean politics would be something like that, though, where you have these sort of events or moments of excess, as I, I've called them before, where, where you know, you've basically taken out of yourself and you, you go beyond your your subjectivity. But then you have to you have to alternate that with like sort of analytical groups. They call it analytical war machines, I think, which have just been, you know, collective group sort of sessions in which you could try to process what, what was going on. Uh, you know, both both internally and in terms of what should be done next, sort of political groups. It, isn't that just a chill out room and a good party? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Not being yeah, I'm up for but, that as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you know what I mean? Like, I was just thinking, oh, the hacienda should be built and all the rest of it. Like as you were saying that, and I was thinking, okay, well, if you've got the utopia, we started talking about utopian futures. As like I was trying to think about what were the other things, and you know, in the same way that when we did a when we did the workshop on the the joy consultants, people were like, we want crushes for adults. <laughs> we want these reflective chill out spaces. And I think, you know, some of that stuff can be unpacked there as well. That's one of the things I liked about the consciousness raising group is that you start with individual experiences. The thing we haven't managed to do is then to take that so that it connects up with the, the sort of like f- fully global sort of structural nature of those constraints and then and and then moves to a strategic mode in which you try to think well what can we collectively do about that you know how you get that on a on a mass level uh, well that's probably the key isn't it yeah this song by bong water kind of 80s american sort of alternative band and it is a really interesting weird it's a sort of partially spoken word and it is sort of reflecting on the complex relationships between sort of politics activism therapy need etc and that is it is really interesting to piece of music kill the bankers kill the cops kill him her and me kill them all the cbs nbc abc tvn cnn hbo live at five mtv street break party weekend sunday jesse raphael harold do we have any advice for people like about therapy i mean i suppose everything we've said does amount to like potential advice so i also don't want to dispense advice and pretend to people that i sort of know what i know what i'm doing i mean one thing this show started out being you know about you know acid communism acid corbinism and people i often get asked not often but fairly frequently i get asked by a friend like who's interested in the idea of like psychedelics as a potential kind of therapeutic intervention or a mode of kind of consciousness expansion and like and and should they seek it out uh, and like i said when we were recording the show like all i can ever say about that is just I don't know because, like, my big period of experimenting with psychedelics is when I was 22 years old, and I had nothing, I had loads of time on my hands, and 
So I have no idea. For someone who isn't 22 in like 1993, like with loads of time on the hands for the next five years, I, I don't know if that is a good idea or not. I mean, Nadia, you know, from from both our experiences, like fairly classical, you know, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic therapy was pretty useful, wasn't it? And you know what, I'm also going to, I don't know whether this will make the edit or not, but this is, and, and I'm not what like dispensing this as universal advice, but I am remembering something like a couple of friends, like good friends over the years have said to me was really good like advice I gave them when they were feeling depressed that changed, that did change their attitude. And it was only this, it was that look, most people are, most people are not happy. Like, you know, most people don't spend their lives in a sort of, um, you know, in a sort of blissed out state most of the time. And I think, and one issue, and it, this is something David Smale talks about, the radical Marxist psychotherapist who Keir referred to earlier, and lots of people have talked about, you know, as a, as a dad, it's something I have to keep, uh, I found really useful kind of trying to explain to children. Like, a lot of people do think that they're the only people who feel sad, or, or it seems like other everybody else seems to have their shit together. And this is this was a, a David Smale thing. He said, look, no one has their shit together. No one feels like they've got their shit together. Like, however successful or happy any, everybody else looks, like, and no one feels like that. And especially today, like in sort of late, you know, advanced capitalism, like we're all sort of clinging on to a certain extent. That is, for me personally, the most useful thing, the thing that does stop me like spiraling into permanent depression is just realizing and accepting that, look, objectively, you know, things are fucked. And so if you, you might as well not go mad and spiral into total depression because doing that isn't going to achieve anything to make me better. And so having realized that you might as well just do whatever it takes, you know, figure out whatever it takes as we keep you sane and not feel guilty about it and not feel like a failure for it. Well, you mentioned David Schmel and one of the, one of his, his sort of analysis of, of, of therapy is, is in some ways there's a huge placebo effect in therapy and it seems that doesn't make too much difference uh, what what technical type of therapy it is? What he thinks is going on is that people are getting comfort and support because of an experience of solidarity in which they don't get solidarity very often. So if there's another lesson in this is you know where where you're able you know try to find relationships of solidarity of other people. Well, just be nice to people as well. Like don't be a dick. Now that's Helps. good advice. <laughs> <laughs> this is. Now that's psychiatry.